I'm excited too, Noah. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I don't have to hear Mr. Nathan preach, yay. <laughs> you know, the Bible tells us that, the, that God in His sovereignty and His power, He formed us in our mother's womb. And the body is a very powerful an amazing creation that God has made. Um, to try to illustrate that today, I chose one part of the body. Um, the human hand is pretty fascinating. Um, probably don't appreciate our hands as much as we should. There's obviously many body parts that we can think about. Um, but the functionality and the design that God has created us to have these hands to do His work and serve Him in amazing ways, uh, we deserve, or He deserves our praise and our glory. Um, and then it's a complex uh, appendage, as you might say, and it's uh, fascinating to me uh, what our hands can do, the signals from our brain communicating to these things. Uh, For example, a couple fun facts about our hands. Obviously, we know the uniqueness of our hands contain the the DNA fingerprints that are unique to us, right? Uh, They probably want to read those at Whole Foods, but that's another story. Um, No no two human beings have the same fingerprints. God, in His uh, sovereignty and His great design, created us to have our own QR code, in a sense, to say, this is you individually. Uh, nothing else will replicate that or, 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 or um, be doubled in this world. Uh, another, issue, another interesting thing to me is that our fingers have no muscles in them. That our forearms are actually what control the tendons that are in our fingers to move and function the way that they do. Uh, This is actually kind of personal to me, but I read that a hand surgeon said that if you're going to lose a finger, the best finger to lose is your index finger. Uh, You were thinking pinky, weren't you? My father-in-law actually had his fingers cut off in an accident when he was young in his uh, early adulthood, and he had them surgically reattached. And if you've ever met my father-in-law, Mickey, you know that his index finger is shorter than all the other ones. But they stuck them in an ice, key, uh, ice chest and took them and, and reattached them, and they are functioning. One is just shorter than the other, and it happens to be his index finger. Um, other, other interesting things that we don't think about, your fingernails show your state of health. You know that if you have deficiencies in your mineral and your vitamins, your liver, your liver or, or thyroid, or even anemia is, is found in the the state of your fingernails, uh, the coloration, um, examples, uh, also the little moons on our, the little half moons on our fingernails also identify oxygen levels in our bloodstream. Um, 
Interestingly, the fingers are more sensitive than our eyes. They have more receptors that are responsible for sending messages to our brain than our own eyes do, which is pretty amazing. And last but not least, the one that I think we probably all know, and that is that the vein in your ring finger runs all the way to your heart, which is why we wear it on our ring finger, um, as if that's some sentimental uh, protection. I don't know. Um, But if you notice in the Bible that the body is used in a continuous metaphor, it's it's a helpful tool to give us to reflect on not only what God has done, but it's a beautiful reflection, it's a beautiful picture of uh, truths of, of God's Word that He wants us to understand. And in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians that we're looking at today, Paul will use this picture of the body in reflection of the church. We have been calling the church the body for many, time, for many years uh, because of this passage. This is not new, but it is an odd thing to say that the church is a body. I would say that if you go out into the world and you talk about your church body, people are going to sound, that's going to sound strange to certain people. But Paul wants us to understand the aspects of the human body, and to relate that to the church because of the unity and the diversity of such things, which is his point in chapter 12. That there is a diversity among us. We all look different. We're all from different backgrounds. And yet we are united in Christ in the same way as Stuart read. And we will not get to all those verses tonight. But as Stuart read, all the different uh, parts of our body that work together in unison and unity to bring about uh, a sense of purpose. They're not going out on their own, doing their own thing. And so as we look at these verses today, I want us to look at uh, the aspect of God's sovereignty in the way in which He joined us together in the body of Christ into one body. And there's some aspects that we need to think about in these passages. And we're going to look at God's picture of the church, which is the body. And we're going to talk about His design and His formation of that church in regards to the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so those are the two uh, areas that we're going to focus on today. So let's first think about God's picture for the church, the human body. Paul uses this uh, picture uh, not only of 1 Corinthians... Uh, But he talks about it in Ephesians. Uh, He talks about it in Colossians. He talks about it in Romans. And he's helping us see this beautiful picture of the human body. For example, one of the things that he highlights and he hammers home for us in understanding the, the, the church as a body is that Christ is the head of that body. And this is so vitally important to us. In Ephesians chapter 1, we are told... In verse 22, that Jesus Christ, it was put in all things in subjection under His feet. So that's the Father giving uh, all things in subjection to the Son under His feet. And He gave Him as head over all things to the church. Similarly, in Ephesians chapter 5, we see this beautiful analogy of Christ being the bride, but also He's called the head of the church. 
So the church is the bride, Christ is the groom, and he says Christ is also the head of the church. And there he is using this analogy, head not only as authority and leader, but he's carrying through this picture, this metaphor that he's been giving us of Christ being the head of the body. He being, as he says, the savior of the body. So, of course, we understand that head signifies leadership, it signifies authority, as we've previously studied even in 1 Corinthians. But Paul is also using it literally to say, as the church is the body of Christ, Christ is the head of that body. And we must rejoice in the truth that we belong to our Savior in such a way, that we are united to Christ. You know, there are ideas about God in this world that He is a distant God, that He is a a God that's hands-off, that He is not a personal God. But the fact that we can understand that Christ is the head and we are united together in Him as the body tells us that we belong to Him. And that belonging is meaningful because it reflects a relationship with God. And that relationship requires and calls for and provides unity in the body. We saw the unity in the Godhead as both Father, Son, and Spirit are all working together to the same mission. So therefore, we should learn unity in that way. But we also understand that as the body of Christ, with Him being our head, we are called to and will practice unity. We will be at peace with one another because we belong to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul makes this picture for us. For even as the body is one, he's talking about the human body, for even as the human body is one and yet has many parts or many members, and all the members of that human body, they are many but are one body, so also is Christ. There's the picture for us. That we are one body with Christ being our head. And we rejoice in that belonging. We rejoice in the fact that we are brought together. And with that unity under Christ's headship, we are called to look beyond our differences and not allow our differences and distinctions to divide us. This is Paul's point. When he gets to the fact that we have spiritual gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit, the church in Corinth was allowing such gifts to lack love, which we'll see in chapter 13, and and lead to disunity in chapter 12. And so Paul's saying, look, the fact is, is that you... And I, we belong to the church because of Christ. He is our head. We are the body. And what he'll say in verse 13 is we are baptized together in this one body. Regardless of whether we're Jew or Greek. Regardless if we're slaves or free. We're all made to drink of one spirit. Now we'll dive into this understanding of being baptized into the body later. But see the unity there. That the body with Christ as the head, which we call the church, is this organism, this entity of, of God's people coming together so that we might do what God has called us to do, to glorify Him on this earth. 
And the beautiful thing about our belonging and the beautiful thing and the hope that we have in Christ as the body is that the body is an eternal plan of God. The body did not form at its beginning in Acts chapter 2. It was actually an eternal plan of God that was realized before anything was ever created. It just, it just happened to formulate on earth in Acts chapter 2, but the plan and the purposes were set in motion in eternity past. Think about this in, in Romans chapter 8. We see that those whom He foreknew, He predestined to do what? Become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He called. And these whom He called, He justified. And these whom He justified, He glorified. Well, who's He talking about? He's talking about all believers in the church being conformed to the image of the Son who were foreknown and predestined before eternity passed. Therefore, since we make up the church, the church was a plan of God before eternity passed. And our belonging is a time to rejoice in that. Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30. How about Ephesians chapter 1? Again, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be the praise of His glory. In verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. In eternity past, God planned and carried out the very plan of God through Jesus Christ upon the cross and His resurrection so that the church who believed in Christ alone, would be formed and be God's own possession. You are God's own possession if you trust in Him. Christ is your head. You belong to Him. He, you are possessed by Him as, one of, as a treasure of His, and He should be your treasure. And these, this brings us great hope. This gives us purpose. In this world, it gives us purpose to know that God has set His love upon me. He's given me this purpose to glorify His name. So I don't need to wander aimlessly in the world without hope. I don't need to wander aimlessly without direction. Because God has said, I have chosen you. I have put my love upon you. You belong to me if you trust in me. If you believe in me and have a relationship with me. Listen. There is no greater gift to any human being than having a relationship with the King of all kings. No civic club or sports team or work relationship or even marital union is as great as having a relationship with your Creator. Nothing can compare. And yet, we consider such a union... We consider the the great love that's been set upon us reflected in the cross of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. And yet as Christians even, we consider that union and we still struggle in fleshly, idolatrous tendency to neglect one relationship for another. We allow Christ's relationship to be pushed to the side so that work, And hobbies, sports, other maybe relationships in our lives 
We forsake our relationship with Christ because we think that there is some satisfying pleasure and satisfying uh, experience that we will find in earthly relationships and we fail to remember that earthly relationships have a shelf life. They're temporary. These teammates, these workmates, these helpmates were never intended to be eternal and therefore our relationship with Christ should be preeminent because He is our head and we are the body. And so which of these relationships in your life get more of your attention? We should be reminded as the body of Christ to find joy in belonging to Him as the source of our life, as the source of our satisfaction. And we must realize that as the body of Christ, individually and corporately, when we set aside our head, we're a headless body walking around trying to find our way around the world. But we've set aside the very thing that gives us leadership and guidance and wisdom. He is our source of life and hope. And we're trying to find some substitute head in the world that will satisfy. And it never does. So Christ is our head and we are members of the body. And as members of the body... We must be reminded, as Paul tells us in a parallel verse in Romans chapter 12. Paul doesn't just address this in Corinthians. He addresses gifts and such unity in Romans chapter 12. Listen to what he says in chapter 12, verses 3 through 5 of Romans. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and, underline this, individually members of one another. So this is important. We focus on our relationship to Christ first, but we also must understand and believe and practice the unity and the relationship of membership in the body. We so prize membership in this church not because we want some contractual agreement, because it's a relationship. It's a relationship with Christ to one another by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. And that means that membership and that relationship takes work, it takes effort. It takes time and sacrifice and love. It literally is what Paul is saying. Do not think too highly of yourselves. But instead, practice your membership in such a way that you remember that you are individually members of one another. That in Christ, we have this responsibility to love and care and serve each other. Not in, not in arrogance, but in humility. Because arrogance is in itself, as we saw at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, it's the danger to unity. And I think Paul is stressing this again in Romans and in 1 Corinthians because it's arrogance over these gifts that they've been given. Oh, well, look at the gifts I have. 
makes me pretty, pretty uh, important to this church. And all throughout the history of church, you have people who have gathered together and some people think, well, I'm really important to this, this body of believers. And if something happens to me, I don't know what's going to happen to the church. It's the truth. And the truth is, is that God sovereignly orchestrates and, and designs and forms not just the universal church, each local assembly. You are here with a purpose. You are here by God's plan. He brought you here. And everything that God intends for you to accomplish for His glory is not a mistake. It's not a coincidence. You didn't stumble into this body. Therefore, He has you here to serve Him and to serve one another. To glorify Him as you care for one another. Because you are not just a member of redemption which joins you with Christ, because you are joined to Christ through salvation, you become a member of a local body so that you become a member of each other and serve one another. So this is the picture that God wants us to see by the Holy Spirit in such a way that we can... I guess, move through these passages and understand them clearly. And then he begins to focus on the formation of the church. He gives us the picture and then he gives us the formation. And this is where we're going to camp out today because chapter 12, verse 13 is a formidable verse in the Bible. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether uh, (coughs) slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. And in this verse, I want us to focus on three things. Number one, that God, by the Spirit of God, we are joined to Christ, that we are united as one in Christ, and that we are satisfied in Christ. To begin, let's think about the fact that the Spirit of God joins us to Christ. One of the reasons why I'm not going through all those verses that Stuart read today is because 13 is a controversial verse in the Bible. Matter of fact, a huge theological position and uh, even denomination has come out of this one verse. One verse. And if we're going to hone it down, it's not just one verse in the Bible, it's actually one preposition in this verse that has spun off into a completely different theology. The Bible says in verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. The idea here, or the controversy, is on the preposition in the New American Standard that says by, translated by. For by one spirit, the Greek in there could also mean for in one spirit, we were all baptized. And from this is this understanding of what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Are we baptized by the Holy Spirit? And if so, when does that occur? Are we baptized in the Holy Spirit? And therefore, when does that occur? Okay? I'm going to start off with 
telling you what it's not, <laughs> in my interpretation. I think it's wrong to interpret this passage that we are baptized in the Holy Spirit because in the Holy Spirit has led to a theology which is known in denominational circles and others as Pentecostal theology. And I'm going to explain to you what that means. In Pentecostal theology, they take this understanding, baptized in the Spirit, meaning that the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes upon a Christian in a second post-conversion experience. In other words, they would say that Paul is merely expressing that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a baptism in the Spirit that happens after your conversion in a second blessing type experience whereby you manifest that blessing by speaking in tongues. So if you are visiting or you have visited a Pentecostal church or you've come from that denomination, then you know that there is a separation and a distinction from, from believers in those congregations whereby one group is, oh, we are Christians, but we've never experienced the second blessing of the coming of the Holy Spirit, which they would call baptism in the Spirit. And then there are others who have received that in in some experiential way, and they have signified that coming of the Spirit in their life by speaking in tongues. And of course, they would argue that that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. I mean, Paul's about to go into the gifts of the Spirit. He's about to talk about the gifts of speaking in tongues. And so we need to ask ourselves, what does the Bible talk about the baptism of the Spirit? I mean, literally, this is what he tells us in verse 13. By one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Well, let's go back and look at a couple verses. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. In the New Testament, John the Baptist tells those gathered around him, Speaking of the Messiah who would be to come. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And later, Jesus in John chapter 16 tells us, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. John tells us Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. John tells us that, or Jesus tells us in John, that that he will send the Holy Spirit to us. And then in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the very famous promise of Jesus But you will receive my power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. The power of the Holy Spirit will do what? Come upon you. Now, Pentecostals will argue that the apostles were already believers in Acts chapter 2, and therefore these promises of the Holy Spirit coming were them receiving the Spirit at Pentecost with accompanying tongues, they would argue, 
which is true, and that that coming of the Spirit was the second gifting of the Holy Spirit upon believers. They would argue, not all people at Pentecost spoke in tongues. And, and then, of course, they would get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and they would argue that Paul is describing such a thing. I want to give you a couple reasons why this should be rejected and why we should look at it differently. Number one, first reason that we should reject Pentecostal interpretation of the baptism of the Spirit is because the promises of John and Jesus, these are foundational promises whereby God is setting up the formation of the church. In this formation of the church, every believer is baptized by the Spirit at their conversion, not some secondary experience. When the Spirit came at Pentecost, we don't know at what point any of these disciples or apostles were believers because it was a unique experience at the formation of the church. There were days that they demonstrated faith. There were days that they did not. We did not have conversion experiences described for us in these men and women for us to understand that. But instead, we can say that in Acts chapter 2, the way in which the Spirit fell upon uh, the disciples who are the, were the apostles, it came in a very unique way because of the formation of the church. This eternal promise of the body of Christ that was, that was given in eternity past was being realized in Christ and the early church. And that the coming of those tongues that accompanied in those moments were signs that were accompanying so that people would have faith in Christ. They were affirming the message that was preached, which we'll get to in our study of tongues. You can look at four different scenarios in the, in the uh, book of Acts whereby the Holy Spirit came upon people and they spoke in tongues. And each one of those four situations had specific reasons for the Holy Spirit coming and giving tongues. Every one of them had to do with the Holy Spirit falling upon a certain group of people. For example, the Samaritans. When it fell upon the Samaritans and tongues were given, it was a sign accompanying the word and the message of them coming to Christ and them being received into the church so that they would, uh, because they would have been excluded in the other way. They were not Jews, they were Samaritans. Again, when the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, what happens? They speak in tongues. Why? Because the Gentiles would not have been included in the church if the apostles, who were Jews, did not see the tongues as an accompanying sign and miracle that what happened was authenticated by God. These are just examples that we can find and have confidence in that these signs of tongues accompanying the coming of the Holy Spirit was not a description of some secondary occurrence in the church, but instead it was the way that the Spirit of God fell upon unique in a unique time in the church's formation that is not duplicated in our world today. 
If anything, I would say that if you go back to Joel and the book of Joel and the prophecies of the Spirit coming, it just further proof that all these things happened in unison, like an orchestra with a beautiful melody of God's perfect redemptive plan coming into purpose with the church forming and the Holy Spirit coming and miracles and signs being exposed, showing us that this was a unique supernatural moment in history whereby God was giving the Holy Spirit to believers. The second reason takes us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So the first reason we should not interpret that right was just given Now we should go to the second reason. The second reason to reject this Pentecostal understanding of baptism of the Spirit goes back to where we see in verse uh, 13. The very idea that Paul is getting to here is that for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. All. If we are all baptized into one body, then that doesn't mean... A select few that were baptized with the Holy Spirit, but all of the church in Corinth who were believers in the church were baptized with the Spirit. So Paul is saying one of two things. If we're leaning into this Pentecostal theology, Paul then is saying that everybody in the church in Corinth had the second blessing of the Holy Spirit. Or he's saying all believers are baptized with the Spirit at conversion which I would say is the proper view. That the baptism of the Holy Spirit, all who are baptized in the Spirit, or we would say, I think, a better translation, who are baptized by the Spirit. Meaning that Paul is teaching that baptism of the Spirit comes at conversion. When we're transformed from death to life in Christ, Jesus Christ is our Lord and the Spirit comes upon us, empowering us to believe, empowering us to live for His glory. And these spiritual gifts that we are given are manifestations of the Spirit's work in our lives. Number three. The last reason to reject the baptism of the Spirit is because the Spirit of God unites us to the body. It doesn't create disunity. The Spirit of God brings unity to us, not disunity. And the very issue at stake here is that the arguing of spiritual gifts should never be something that creates disunity. But the second blessing, baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's exactly what that does. It creates disunity in the church. It creates elitism. It creates classism. It it goes to say, hey, listen, I've received this blessing. So everybody that's received the second blessing, y'all sit over here. And everybody who's not yet received it, the second tier Christians, you guys sit to the left over here. That's exactly what that theology does. Some form of classism or elitism in the church that is not loving, it's not helpful, and it's, in my opinion, not biblical. Let me encourage you to study or follow um, some of the writings and the ministry of a man named Kosti Hinn. Kosti Hinn is the uh, nephew of Benny Hinn. Kosti Hinn was the... uh, heir to the throne of Benny Hinn's uh, charismatic and Pentecostal movement. 
He was set to inherit this ministry from his uncle, and God radically saved Costi from this, uh, these erroneous doctrines. He was rescued, and he's written extensively about it. He tells his testimony in books, but he has a new book called Knowing the Spirit, and he says this about Pentecostal theology and baptism of the Spirit. He says, quote, some will propose that there can be believers who are baptized in the Holy Spirit and those who are not baptized in the Holy Spirit but need to be. He likewise says this creates division where the Bible does not. This fosters disunity between people, spiritual elitism in those who are the upperclassmen in God's family, and insecurity for those who feel they are second-class citizens of the church. And this is exactly the opposite of why Jesus gave the Spirit to the church. Not so that there would be elitism or classism, but there would be service and ministry, and love, and care. Not thinking highly of yourselves, but thinking of others as more important than you. So it unites us. Matter of fact, Paul continues in in verse 13 that, that whether we're Jews or Greeks, whether we're slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one Spirit. Paul wants us to see that these spiritual gifts don't lead to division, In the same way that our ethnicities don't lead us to division. Listen, whatever uh, culture you grew up in, your culture does not supersede your relationship to Christ and the members of this local body. You are first a believer in Christ, then you are a cultural distinctive from your brother or sister in Christ. But those distinctives should never lead us to divide. And in this day and age in our church, that's exactly what's happening. And it shames the Lord. To say that race or economics or politics allow us to divide. To hate one another. To treat each other with contempt. Listen, it's by God's sovereign powerful purpose and design that you were born into the culture that you were born into. You shouldn't apologize for that. Embrace that. But let me ask, let me ask you this. Your first birth was cultural. Your second birth, birth was supernatural. Why are we putting the first over the second? Whatever economics, whatever ethnicity you may be born into, that should never take preeminence over the fact that you belong to Christ and you belong to one another. Therefore, we love and care for one another. Because the Spirit of God, it dwells within all of us. We are one body with one Spirit. So whether you're a Jew or a Greek, which is by far the divided groups of Paul's day, or slave or free, a divided group of people, You know, in the book of Colossians, Paul talks about how slaves should obey their masters and masters should be kind to their slaves. You know, the reason why is because in that economy, sometimes slaves would actually be pastors of their masters in church. I'll say that again. Sometimes slaves would be the pastors of their masters at church. In other words, you better get along Because from an economic standpoint, you may be the boss and they may be the serviceman, but when church comes around, the serviceman is the pastor and you're submitting to his leadership. 
Because it's not about economy or politics or ethnicity when it comes to our unity in the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God satisfies or unites us. And finally, the Spirit of God satisfies us. It says, for by one spirit you are all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. Lastly, this passage teaches us that we are to be satisfied in Christ by the spirit regenerating work in us. Think of lives, think of your life as an unbeliever before Christ. Think of your friends that are unbelievers, your family members. They live in a perpetual, long-term dissatisfaction with the world around them. Unbelievers cannot be satisfied because their lusts and their desires are governed by a sin nature that is acting against creation. In other words, our desires are so twisted because sin has twisted this world away from its created purpose... That created purpose where we are to worship and enjoy God forever. And instead, because sin twists that and pollutes that, we are worshiping and enjoying everything else but God forever. And we are never satisfied in sin. We are always longing for something new and different and appealing and tantalizing And it will be a perpetual, unsatiable experience for that person's life. But when Christ comes to save us, the Spirit comes upon us and we are born again in such a way that our desires long for Him. Our understanding is changed to know Him. Our hunger to love Him and serve Him and study about Him and serve others who belong to Him is completely new for us. Which, by the way, is proof that the Spirit of God has baptized us at our conversion because we are changed and therefore the Spirit of God has been made us to drink of the Spirit. Now, when you think about drinking in the Bible... The word drink of the Spirit has the connotation of the Lord's Supper. Paul's already talked about the Lord's Supper and talking, talked about drinking in his letter. So let's look back at John, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Be reminded he's making this parallel of the Lord's Supper. And he says, looking back to Moses, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. He's talking about when Moses struck the rock and the water came out after complaining Jews were thirsty and they were hungry and they were going through the wilderness, and God provided a way even though they were grumbling, and the water provided a sense of nourishment and it quenched their thirst. And Paul makes the spiritual connection to that. That the spiritual drink and the spiritual thirst was satisfied in Christ. He satisfies us. Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 7. On the great day of the feast in John chapter 7, Jesus stands up and says, If anyone is what? Thirsty. Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. 
And they're like, living water? How can water be living? I mean, of course, it's, it's real, it's a reality, but how can it be living? And then John, in his commentary on that, says, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to be to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the living water was the literal, literally changing of a person from rebellion against Christ to Christ, finding satisfaction in Him by the Spirit that's been given. So it's the Spirit of God poured out on us on our conversion so that we are longing for Christ. Without the Spirit, you won't long for Christ. Without the Spirit, you're, not, you're lost. You're an unbeliever. And you're longing for the things of this world. But when Christ comes and saves us, the Spirit transforms us. And Christ becomes our greatest treasure. A desire is born within us from the Holy Spirit to long for the things that Christ loves and calls us to live by. And we begin to turn away from those treasuring of, the, of earthly temporal things. And we gain a sense of conviction so that when we turn back to those things in our struggle with sin, we're reminded that falling away from a satisfaction in Christ is a, is a deathly turn. And so we repent by the Spirit's power and we turn back to Christ, finding again satisfaction in Him because He gives us life and He gives us hope and He gives us comfort and He gives us nourishment for what we need. So consider your own life. Consider your position, as we might say, with Christ. If Christ is your Lord and Savior, if you've trusted in Him, then you belong to Christ by the Holy Spirit. You have received that Holy Spirit at your conversion when you have trusted in Him and He has saved you. And evidence of that is that you are united in this body or in a body of, of believers and you are satisfied in Christ as long, in, in unison with other people who are satisfied with Christ. So that when you read Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. You're like, that's me. I long for Christ. I long to be satisfied with Him. Yes, I'm tempted to be satisfied with things in the world, but I long to find my soul comforted and nourished in Christ. You find hope in Psalm 107. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. For He has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul He has filled with what is good. And you're like, yes! Yes, the Lord. I can testify that the Lord has done this in my life. And that there's no other way that I would find joy in that and hope in that and, and comfort in that if the Spirit of God had not done that through a regenerating work in me. Because the Spirit gives us satisfaction in Christ alone. And without Him... We are hungry beasts with an unquenchable thirst for the world. 
that will lead to our death and our destruction where we will face the wrath of God. But when the Lord saves us, He satisfies our thirsty soul and therefore let us trust Him, let us be unified in Him, and let us praise Him as the head of the church. As I close, I just want to challenge you to to evaluate your life. Evaluate who you hope in. Evaluate who you're satisfied in. The Spirit of God is moving in your life. He's doing one of two things. He's convicting you that you need Christ, or He's reminding you that you belong to Him. I hope and pray that you would respond in those ways. You don't have to walk an aisle to respond. You simply need to bow your head in prayer, acknowledge your sin to Christ, trust in Him fully and completely as Lord and Savior, turning from your sin, the things that He despises, and put your faith and trust in Him alone. You could be like me who for years played in a, in a church congregation, never really belonging to Christ, only knowing in my own heart and my own evaluation day by day that it was empty. There was just a void of nothingness in a relationship with God. And then Christ saved me. If you need Christ today, I pray you'd cry out to Him and He will save you. He will save you. Let's pray. Father, I just... We're thankful for the Spirit's testimony in our lives and the ways that He's formed us in a body, bringing us to a relationship with Christ, bringing us to a relationship with one another. Father, I don't know that we would even know each other if, it, if it's not because of Christ and what His Spirit has done in bringing us into this body. But thank You for it. Thank You for this family. Thank you for this regenerative work that we have in Him that we can be changed, that we don't have to live a hopeless life. And God, I pray now for those that don't know Christ in here, who are done being phonies and fakes, Lord, I pray that you would save them. That they would give up their satisfactions of the world knowing that it will never satisfy and they would find their hope in Christ alone. God, this is what we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand again.